What an extraordinary groove. What a song that is. Have you heard it before, Cindy? Uh, well, you know, don't be mean to me, Wallace. <laughs> I mean, I have heard it, but, you know, not until I got the screechy chorus line. Not really. Okay, I, you, I, I would, you couldn't tell you what it was called or who, who sang it. All right. So, all right, you wouldn't know it, but what someone who does know is Sarah uh, from Wellington. Kia ora, Sarah. Hi there. Did you get this uh, straight away when I talked about that, when I said the lyrics? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a classic. I love that song. Isn't it amazing? So I took a big chance at the high school dance with the Missy who was ready to play. Can you recall, I mean, I don't know if you were around or not when it first came out, but uh, David was, but it was it was so groundbreaking in its time, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't think I was um, very old when it came out originally. I think it originally came out with um, just Aerosmith, but the Run DMC version is um, the one that I really like, and it's yeah, the more popular one. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Sarah. Hey, thanks for calling. Uh, lovely to have you on. So, yep, uh, walk this way, run DMC. Uh, Sarah got us straight away, but uh, let's let's hear it. Uh, Brad, a bit more of it. Here we go. Come on, Dave. That's such a great track, isn't it? Oh, well, yeah, it is. Um, I've got to say, though, the I have never paid attention to any Aerosmith lyrics apart from Dream On because you can really well, I don't know it's actually my favourite Aerosmith song Dream yeah. On, um, but yeah, yeah, as soon as as soon as that started you had me moving again. Very good, alright That's uh, and thanks for uh, contributing many texts uh, absolutely right, most people got it although one person said uh, is it Love Me Do, Love Me Do by the Beatles which uh, clearly it is not. Which I have heard. You have and heard I that do, song? Yes, I've heard that song, yeah. and I do know the words to that one. 24 to 5, the panel are in Z National. In light of the upcoming annual budget, Auckland Council is weighing up major asset sales to remedy its $375 million budget gap. One of its biggest assets, of course, is Auckland Airport, of which it owns an 18% stake. Currently, it is one of four airports to have a mixture of public and private Ownership. While selling those shares would certainly be a means to fast cash for the council, a number of commentators rather have spoken out against the proposal, and one of those is Max Harris, a member of A Better Budget for Auckland, uh, who is with us now. Kia ora, Max. Kia ora, Wallace. Thanks for having me on. Very good to have you here. Um, the council's stake uh, in the airport, uh, 18%, that's current take worth around $2.37 billion. And just close your eyes for a minute, minute Max, and just think of what that could do right now for the super city. So many problems could be fixed with a sugar hit like $2.7 billion. Yeah, that's tempting, Wallace, but um, it's a bit of a fantasy, isn't it? Because uh, it's not actually relevant to the budget challenge ahead. That's um, a a capital value um, that might be helpful in reducing debt, but Auckland Council doesn't actually have a debt crisis, as people like Bernard Hickey have pointed out. What you'd actually make from selling the airport that's relevant to the budget is much, much smaller. It's a saving on the interest that might be paid through reduced borrowing. And what the budget documents themselves show is that over time, that actually is, is going to go down as the dividends rebound. And over time, the council might actually lose money. So what might start when you close your eyes 
looking like um, something really attractive looks much less attractive, and that's even before we think about some of the other reasons why it would be good to hold on to the airport and oppose privatisation. Well, what I'm seeing here is, uh, or what the mayor, I guess, would say is that um, the selling the stake, the reasons for selling the stake is to pay down debt, saving the council eighty-seven million bucks in interest payments each year, eclipsing the expected thirty-nine million dollars in dividends in the current financial year. If the mayor was on here, he'd just go, "This is a lousy investment for debt-burdened ratepayers." Uh, is there not something else that we could invest in rather than uh, having ownership of an airport? Well, there's a few things to say about that. I mean, first of all, the dividends are tracking upwards over time. The share price and the dividend have increased um, even since the even since the budget. Um, and um, there are lots of other reasons why it's a good idea to keep this public stake. It's an asset that the council can borrow against, which is actually good for its credit rating. Um, it's good for um, public health and climate emergencies. It's why you see actually more countries and local governments around the world buying more of airports rather than less. Um, and uh, it's, it's a public strategic asset, which also um, reflects a lot of jobs um, for our city and 15 square kilometres of, of land that was originally compulsorily acquired from, from iwi and landowners. So there's lots of uh, reasons when we think about the broader picture. And the other important broader point is that Auckland Council does not face a debt crisis. It's well below its uh, debt ceiling. Um, so there's not a need um, to, to kind of sell things off for this kind of short-term sugar hit. And it's a very short-term decision that um, we say is not in the long-term interest of the city. I'd like to hear what our listeners think of this, uh, particularly if you uh, live in Tamaki Makoto. Do you think that we should uh, sell down our shares in Auckland Airport, take that money out and actually invest it in something else, put a bit of money into uh, some of the immediate uh, issues? So. That, I think that's the point, though. We're not actually going to invest it. We're taking it out to spend it. We're not. It's going into OPEX. And, I mean, I think your description of it as a sugar hit is perfect because that's just what it is, uh, just a one-off sugar hit. I mean, we're basically selling the family silver. This is our silver. And, I mean, of course the shares are down with COVID and, you know, guess what? You couldn't fly in or out, so hello, not much happening. But if you look at the airport plans in terms of investment, what's going on, joining domestic and international terminals, if you look at what's happening around the airport, I think it's absolutely critical that we keep it. It is the gateway to our city. It's a pretty, we actually pretty need, solid growth prospect. Yeah, and we actually need a director on there. The Auckland Council has got 18% and apparently the threshold for a director is 19% or something, which sounds very engineered to me. Okay, so I'd strongly, like to to, more. strongly to keep the shares in Auckland yeah. Airport. Stay there, Max. David, Max, Max and talk to Walkenders too on the uh, yeah. on the panel. Indeed, uh, Max. Thank you for this, uh, and and I really just want to zoom back in on your point about the fact that this isn't actually a debt crisis, and I, I don't think this can be said too often or explored too often. And uh, and I want to do it with my eyes open rather than shut. I found that if you try to write, drive Wallace on the motorway with your eyes shut, terrible things happen. Um, Okay then. So Max, can I just jump in then? So if, if we if we keep things the, the way they go with this uh, supposed three hundred and seventy five million dollar budget gap, and we do nothing, Max, are my rates in Blockhouse Bay will they go up twenty two point five percent? 
The first thing to say, Wallace, is um, the, the, the so-called budget holds 325 million, not 375 million. That's been a bit misleading. What the council's put out, 50 million of that is um, on um, storm repairs, which are um, going to be funded out of debt. But I think uh, to answer your question directly, um, there's actually quite a lot of tools in um, the council's. Um, workshop on this. It's not um, just that your rates um, will definitely go up. So there's more use that could be made of borrowing. Um, the council's not using its full borrowing powers at the moment. Um, rates could go up and, and, and perhaps we should be lifting them. They've been at very low levels for a long time and we've seen underinvestment across the city in infrastructure and core services. But there are also other things we could think about. Um, unfree uh, the, the current budget's talking about unfreezing targeted rates. There's um, support, further support from central government. There's other charges that we could be considering. One of the things the mayor's been saying is that this is a choice between cuts and selling the airport. And what we need to understand is the choice is much broader than that. We yeah. have options here, and this is not David. the only option. Yeah, Max, thank you for that. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to explore also the question of targeted rate a little more. You know, is it possible to achieve it in, in ways that are not being achieved yet? Oh, and sorry, a, a, a second one. Could we also throw into focus the question of comparative rate uh, levels here with other cities. My sense is that it, it uh, is somewhat lower in Auckland than um, many others once you combine the, uh, the, the water charges. Yeah, I, I think if you look at uh, rates since the super city came into uh, force, and they've been kept very low, around 1% to 3%, much lower than, than other centres. So it, you might think it's time for rates to keep up. Uh, pace with inflation. On your other question about targeted rates, there are other options. Unfortunately, we now have limited time because of the way this consultation has been set up and, um, according to some people, tilted. But there are other things yeah. that we can think about in future years. For example, Auckland Council just won in the Supreme Court around its um, accommodation provider targeted rate, which mm. um, essentially said uh, Auckland Council can make money from certain commercial accommodation providers. So there are other ways, and we should be thinking about um, how we build up investment in the city. Uh, to go to your point earlier, Wallace, we're not actually talking about reinvesting money um, from the, the, the sale of the airport. And we should be thinking about how can we get income up in a sustainable way and in a way that doesn't leave right. people of Tamaki Makoto oh. Auckland behind. Okay, fair enough. Best. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. That's Max Harris, who is a member of A Better Budget for Auckland and uh, doesn't seem to be a lot of love for actually taking the shares uh, out of the airport. There. Can I just come back and address something about you said people are pretty shocked by you bringing up the baldness of uh, Chris Luxon uh, and the issue of you citing that as uh, one of a suite of issues that might be sway. I do recall an article many years ago in The Listener talking about various prime ministers did a rebrand, if you like, yep. not just Chris Luxon. Um, for example, David Longy yes, did it, a refresh in his image, yeah. and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a be-all and end-all, but it was part of a suite of things to yeah. make him appear approachable. Remember his big thick-rimmed glasses that he had? So, for example, he got thin-rimmed glasses, a new hairstyle. Uh, the article, a makeover, it's Yes, called. the article um, said Helen Clark did a similar thing coming yeah. into the editor. So, you know, not entirely out of the bounds of... It's basically the Bob Harvey effect. He did it with yes, um, that's um, exactly um, it. Norman Kirk and... Yeah. That's it. But, I mean, is that, that's is that so but bad, the, the, having a makeover? Is that a, is that a terrible thing? We might break that on the panel again. The makeovers of past uh, politicians. Yeah, I mean, my, to conclude, my to fill out my point, um, it is an element that can have a bearing. It 
can be outsized. Sometimes it can have less relevance. Others, I still maintain that it's what this guy Got is it. saying rather than well, his presence. Of course. We'll, we'll raise it again. I, I, I must come to this because I'm really interested to hear what you both say on this because yoga is a big hit in New Zealand and studios teaching the practice now scatter the country. But some of them are facing accusations of appropriating South Asian cultures and traditions. The main criticism stems from studios decorating their spaces with sacred symbols and imagery of deities for aesthetic purposes without the respect that goes behind it. Yoga NZ has responded saying it recognises the role it plays in respecting the traditions of yoga and is continuing to develop standards for cultural appropriateness. Interesting article and stuff about this. Uh, Prageeth uh, Jayathisa is the author behind the guidebook Moral Flowcharts for Modern Yoga. Prageeth, welcome. Kia ora. What has your relationship with yoga been yeah, throughout your life? Well, I guess it started off as a kid um, with grandmother teaching meditation and breathing. And I think it's important to also know that, you know, from our viewpoint, we speak of South Asian philosophy as a whole, as opposed to sometimes Eurocentric viewpoint tends to divide things into particular categories, such as yoga, Hinduism, Buddhism, for example. And so you get where this article and this idea is coming from, the fact that there is not the, um, I guess, the respect or recognition uh, of, 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 the, of the deep background? Yeah, it's not so black and white. The complexity is the nuance that yoga is an inclusive practice, so it's okay for other cultures to adopt it. You know, back in the 1600s, it was adopted throughout the Middle East and, and integrated into Islamic culture. The, the nuance comes because yoga was made illegal during colonization by the Western world. Right. And, you know, and yoga is traditionally a, a practice that is taught for free in the community, for the community, um, to empower and embitter it. And suddenly, just after colonization, this illegal practice suddenly turned into an $85 billion largely Western-driven industry. So that's a complexity that we have to navigate. There's no real right or wrong. Yeah. And, and yeah, certainly. So, so is what, what you're talking about really that, in fact, the Western appropriation of it has taken the physical exercise side of it and left out the spiritual, you know, the ethical and the, the philosophical context, which is the whole yeah. of yoga. Yes, that's right. So in the Western world, yoga merged with rhythmic gymnastics. And that's what resulted in what we now call modern Western postural yoga, which is, yeah, it's focused around the, it's focused around essentially flexibility and fitness. Um, whereas, you know, traditional forms of yoga, if you look at one of the oldest forms of yoga, is the yoga of work, known as karma yoga. And this is how we approach our work, our mahi. And that has nothing to do with stretching or movement or breath or any of those elements, but it's one of these fundamental and, you know, founding yoga practices because it allows your work to be spiritually uplifting as opposed to spiritually draining. Well, you don't, you do, sorry, sorry, Prageet, keep going. Go on. Okay. Um, so instead of, you know, we've kind of formed this kind of almost hilarious conundrum where we have a stressful work day and then we need to go to a Western yoga class to de-stress <laughs> from that. Right. Well, uh, pretty. Oh, we've got a yoga practitioner right here, David. Oh, I've got a. Um, I forgot. 
Very, very nice to meet you, and thank you for this. And, and I, uh, I, 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 Wallace has presented me as as somebody possibly more than I am. I, I am from time you, to time. You've been to right. one yoga I, class I, once. Oh, oh no, no, I've done plenty, but uh, I come and go. And and this and also meditation. And it has struck me listening to this that there are aspects of this I haven't really reflected on quite in this clarity about the 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 paradox yeah. that. All of this is under seeing yourself as something part of a much larger whole and, and, and seeing yourself as being a part of a, um, something much broader. Whereas, if, and, um, you know, the, the philosophy I mean, um, whereas, of course, this, this working on your core rather than your soul is just so individualistic. And, and of, of all the ways you could disrespect um, or, or, dis, or fail to understand the meaning of yoga, that's uh, the the exercise one. Really, does seem to be um, about as as egregious as it could get. And yet, and yet, you go to these classes, and they feel, you know, quite kindly and and positive and and gentle and and all kinds of things. But is the sorry, and, I, and I'm rambling a bit here, and I apologise for that. Yep. So my question is, is is it in particular some of the the, the misuse of iconography and that kind of thing that that, that is the jar, most jarring point here? What what? What, where, where is the problem most, would you, would you think? Yeah, and, and first of all, I just want to be clear to the yoga studios in Aotearoa that it would be, I would be disheartened if they were all of a sudden closed down as a result of this article or this conversation. I think this, they, they hold a really beautiful space and they need to exist. Um, it's just a matter of how do they transition. And if I were to give examples of where I think it's been misused, one example is... If a studio were to advertise and in the advertising they would only show young, thin, flexible people doing, you know, beautiful looking postures on a beach, that is a misrepresentation mm. of yoga because you've suddenly created an exclusivity that yoga is not for the old, it's not for the unabled, it's not for those of, you know, deferring body types, sizes, you know, flexibility and, and being. Mm. Another good example which you nicely highlighted was the use of sacred symbols and deities, right? These have quite significant spiritual significance and cultural significance. And the worst utilization of them that I've seen is when it's been used for a profit generating mechanism such as selling clothing or Uh, yoga pants or things like this. This is really quite disrespectful. But even when it's used as decoration, it's also not really respecting the true authenticity of that space. On the flip side, I've seen other studios that have really taken great detail into understanding the nature of a particular symbol or a particular deity, really right. studying the in-depth philosophy, and then portraying it in its authentic form. That's beautiful. Lovely to have you on, Prageeth. A bit of response here on that. So, kia ora. Thank you for your time. Prageeth Jayathesa, author of Behind the Guidebook, Moral Flowcharts for Modern Yoga. Um, so interesting. In my experience from attending classes, you cannot separate the exercise from the spiritual. Western culture has certainly capitalized on it and misappropriated it definitely. Finally, on the panel with David Slag and Cindy Minch, now I hadn't heard of this plant, a rare plant in Hawke's Bay is clinging for survival. The kakabik, or ngutukaka, features stunning red flowers and is native to the North Island uh, in the East Coast there. They are rare, under threat, pre-cyclone Gabriel. There were only 109 kakabik plants in the world. They need your help. With us is James Pody the Urban Kakabik Project lead. Welcome, James. Thank you, Wallace. I was amazed to see how rare these plants are. Tell us more about them. 
Well, the carcavegs are legumes, so that fixes nitrogen um, from the atmosphere and puts it into the soil, which makes it quite unusual among New Zealand forest plants. And it's also famous for these beautiful big red and pink flowers and occasional white ones. Um, it was prolific throughout Hawke's Bay and the East Coast. And now, like you say, there's 109 left in our last census and, and quite likely quite a few, few less now after this terrible cyclone, which will have knocked them off their cliffy perches. So, so James, what makes them more susceptible than um, other native plants? 109's n- not a lot, but presumably there were quite a few more a while ago. So what, what is something killing them? Uh, you know, what, what's happening? Yeah, they're our own worst enemy in terms of being really palatable. So yeah, and goats um, love eating them, so do rabbits. So do slugs and snails, and humans used to eat them too. So the, um, the pea-like pods were edible, and Māori used to um, use them as a food source, high-protein food source. And in the New Zealand forest, there's not many things that um, fix nitrogen and create those building blocks of protein. So it's very sought after uh, in the diet of anything that um, is made out of out of protein, like most of us are. And so it's just been consumed by being too palatable and and Therefore, disappearing. James, oh, yeah. James, I just want to leap ahead to the possible solution, just yeah. just so that you get coverage of it. Uh, as I understand yeah. it, you're wanting to get people to grow it in their in their own gardens as uh, sort of um, volunteer nursery people. Is that have I, do I am I understanding right? Sure thing. So we we have the disappearing wild source of um, of plants, and so we're wanting to establish this plant in home gardens and in. Um, nurseries and in private collections so that one day when we uh, get on top of our pests we'll have that suitable material to put back out into nature. Could, could we and, and send it, them, mm, sorry. And is this just in, in Hawke's Bay or right across the country? Can the, right. Would the seaside village of Devonport be acceptable? Sure, you're welcome to grow some up there and then when they um, create their seed pods send those back down to us and we'll propagate them and share them around. So, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. I'm keen. Yeah, yeah. please. Uh, are these are these big bushes I have in my garden and have had for years here in Martinborough, says someone. Uh, I have three on my property in Palmerston North and am germinating the seeds. So what would you like, uh, how would you like um, the panel listeners to help you this afternoon, James? Sure thing. So the, the first thing is to, um, on Facebook, if you're a member of that, to join the Urban Kakabik Project. And then just make your offers um, via that um, that Facebook group, and we're well we're welcoming uh, seed, particularly that we can prove is from a wild source. So we've uh, gifted about fifteen hundred plants into the community, so we're really welcoming seed back from those plants, and we're especially keen on that because uh, many of our collections that we've established have been damaged by the cyclone as well. Mm, so we're right. really wanting to catch up and and get those numbers representing these wild plants. So James, could could we not be sending some seeds round to the? There's there's a few predator free areas in New Zealand. There's the one in the back of Karori, the the islands, etc. Is there a particular climate, or are they going to grow anywhere? Um, they they like the east coast as a as a native um, origin, but that doesn't mean that they won't grow elsewhere. I guess the thing we're interested in is just determining that we're using material that's from a wild origin. So these have been grown in nurseries for a couple of centuries and bred for their 
colour of flower right. or, or shape. Go well, James. Good on you. And all the best with the Karkabeek project there. Uh, that's us for this afternoon, Monday afternoon. David Slack, Cindy Michener, wonderful stuff. Plant love, that way. Plant, yes. <laughs> <laughs> plant that way. Kumutu, Thank you for having us. Kumutu te hōtaka mō tēnei rā kia pai tō koutou pō. That is us for today. Have a great night. Checkpoint is next. Thank you.